0: Hello and welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yucking about tax, so we've invited a range of experts and practitioners, including our colleagues at Tax Banter, Web Consulting and Taxed, to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Robin Jacobson, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter and your host of today's podcast. I'm joined today by Neil Jones, director of Tax Banter. Neil, welcome to Taxiac.
1: Thanks, Robin, and it's good to be here.
0: I should say welcome again, because uh, we've already had a chat in our last episode about the state of the nation, political environment, tax policy. So I thought today maybe we could delve into some of the unenacted measures. So with the state of flux in Parliament, Senate comes and goes, or come on for a couple of weeks and then they go away again for another couple of weeks, we're left with a bundle of measures that either have start dates 1 July this year or even retrospective start dates. So why don't we which may through. not have
1: been retrospective at the time, but have stalled and Absolutely. for whatever reason the Senate hasn't got around to debating
0: That is correct. so let's run through a list of bills and I'll have a chat about where some of these are up to. So corporate tax cuts now this is in two parts we've got the big end of town tax cuts, and then we've got the small end of town which was uh, affected by the base rate entities bill. so can you comment on each of those?:
1: Well, it seems the fight is over for the relief for the bigger or larger top end of town so turnovers over 50 million yet to be enacted was defeated in the senate so and i think the government has realized now that that's not going to get through and so have shelved that idea Um, so you know reducing the company tax rate to 27.5 progressively out to 2024 defeated by the minority senators and i think the queue's been put in the rack on that and the government will no longer pursue that as part of their 10-year corporate tax plan the base rate entity bill has got through and that's a good thing to happen because it does provide certainty for those corporates for their 2018 year. So it's a fairly significant alteration as to determine who's eligible for that 27.5% tax rate. So the fact that it's got through, people have got certainty, they know now that for 2018 their lower company tax rate will be driven by their turnover, which is under the 25 mil on an aggregated basis. and They will no longer be testing whether they are carrying on a business or not, but will be looking at whether the extent of their passive income, what we define as base rate entity passive income, does not exceed 80% of their gross assessable income. So that's now certain people can move forward. There may have been some corporates that have lodged in the time after 1 July. Uh, The few people I've spoken to that have lodged are pretty comfortable there's no remedial action needs to be taken. Uh, dividends possibly a little bit so the fact that your dividend franking percentage is capped and it's a maximum available to attach to a dividend that calculation has changed a little bit so it's a little bit of a different way we do it but you end up with the same outcome Uh, but that will be now driven by what happened in the preceding year. So
0: that makes it a bit more complicated doesn't it? It is
1: more complicated but again software will make this all happen you know it's just magnificent tax return preparation software and and software generally, or even just an Excel spreadsheet with a good formula put into it. But now it's driven by what happened in the prior year. So to determine what rate you can frank your distributions, you do need to look into the preceding year and work out what was my turnover, what was my passive income, and what proportion of my gross assessable was that passive income. So for franking, it's a little bit different. You've got to look backwards, whereas for your tax rate, you're looking at the current year's performance.
0: And that's going to have an impact on the timing of dividend policy. So uh, when you choose to pay your dividends.
1: Yeah, potentially. But again, most of that, you know, they, they can take the cash. As we know, most small businesses, and we're talking here mostly, predominantly small businesses, the owners access the cash on a fairly frequent basis. You know, credit bank, credit bank, credit bank, credit bank. The other side, whether it turns into a dividend or it's just debited to a loan account and then cleared out by the pa- payment of a dividend between, say, the end of the year and lodgement date to avoid any Division 7A issues, um, some pay them out before the end of the year some pay them after the end of the year um, so that might change a little bit of that but i think you know the pattern of what a lot of owners of small businesses do won't change that much
0: right, we can have a chat in a, a future podcast about the base rate entities Bill in, in more detail superannuation the proposed and that's a very important word here proposed sg amnesty that...
1: yeah, it, there's a lot of confusion out there as to what to do but um i think when the Kelly O'Dwyer, the former Minister for Revenue and Assistant Treasurer, made that announcement back on the 24th of May and the law was introduced on the same day. Um, I thought it was an amazing announcement, a great big get-out-of-jail-free card, considering the government had just been introducing measures to beef up the Commissioner's powers for non-compliant employers who hadn't done the right thing by their employees. Then to turn around and give you this great opportunity to come clean, going back to 1992, was just staggering in my mind but it is not law yet so there's a lot of confusion as to what to do now clearly if you haven't done the right thing you've got to do the right thing so you've got to make good and that means if you haven't paid the right amount of super for your team for your employees you should be doing that so that bill's currently before parliament if it doesn't pass then the major carrot, this get-out-of-jail-free card, is the tax deductibility of your super-guaranteed shortfall payment. If it doesn't pass, there will be no tax deductions. But from a ethical moral fairness compass you should be paying your super for your team you've always had that obligation you've always had to make good Um, this is just giving you an opportunity to do so without the the biggest stick of non-deductibility and the penalties i'm going to
0: ask about the penalties because a lot of employers out there at the moment and their accountants are tossing up whether they should come forward now and make a disclosure or should they hold off to see if this becomes law but penalties have to be a question in all that
1: well, I think under the SG rules, Division 7 and the penalties, let's, say, let's put this scenario to you. I do all my work and I try to work out what I haven't fulfilled in terms of my obligations. I might need to talk to my team about that, my employees. Now, if one of those employees goes to the tax office and says, you know, Neil hasn't paid my super, but I understand he's doing some work, the ATA might then trigger their own investigation of my performance. Now, if they act first then I might not be able to claim the amnesty. So I think anyone who goes to the ATO before the ATO comes to them is in a far better position in terms of penalties.
0: Now this is because if you receive an audit or a review from the ATO, you're now ineligible for the amnesty.
1: Correct, correct. So if I was in the situation where we hadn't perhaps met all of our super obligations, I would be going to the ATO now because I think... If the law passes, it'll be an amnesty disclosure, and I'll get the benefit of no penalties. Uh, Still gotta pay the super, gotta pay the uh, 10% interest and the GOC, but I have no penalties and I'll get a tax deduction. Now if the law doesn't pass, the only difference effectively is gonna be I don't get a tax deduction. If I've gone on the front foot and gone to the ATO, I'm pretty comfortable the ATO is gonna say no penalties for you because you've come forward. Even though I may not get the tax deduction because this law doesn't change, I think you're in a better position to have gone forward.
0: Neil, another interesting aspect to this whole debate on the SG Amnesty and whether you should come forward now or later is NOCLAR. Now for those who have not heard of NOCLAR or don't understand it, it's N-O-C-L-A-R and it's Non-Compliance with Laws and Regulations. And since the beginning of this year, it's imposed a disclosure requirement, an obligation on accountants and other professionals to report to authorities where they have a client who has not complied with Australia's laws and regulations, and that's not confined to tax law. So, where does NOCLA sit in all of this? If you've got a client you know hasn't complied with the super laws, you are thinking of coming forward and making a disclosure under the amnesty, you're not sure whether you should do it now or hold off, and then we've got NOCLA over the top of all that.
1: Well, like most participants in a tax scheme, as sort of a, the assistance, or not the regulator themselves, but assistance in the process, do have obligations to make sure things are done properly. So yes, the non-compliance with laws and regulation does have a duty to disclose where you become aware of uh, non-compliance, but the tax agents code themselves, so under TARS or under the Tax Agent Services Act of 2009, you know, a tax agent cannot knowingly be complicit in a mistake and a non-application of the law. So you've got, you know, the code of conduct under TASI, you've got NOCLA, so if my client has not fulfilled their obligations, and so by going forward to the tax office, getting on the front foot, then the only downside is, if the law doesn't pass, you're gonna lose your tax deduction. That's the only real downside. You still should get full remission of penalties. Um, You might, I think the tax office is still gonna waive the $20 admin fee. Um, if it doesn't, but that's unknown at this stage.
0: If the law doesn't go through, then they won't be able to remit the $20 because that's built into the list in mm. the legislation. So that yeah. would be fixed.
1: Yeah, so again, $20 per employee per, per quarter can add up as well.
0: Absolutely. Look, it's going to be interesting to sit back and watch this. It'd be lovely if we can get some certainty on this in the next few weeks, but um, another one we need to watch out for. Now, in the last podcast, we did have an extensive chat about the $20,000 asset write-off, but just from a perspective of the status of that bill, it's proposed to go to $20,000 through to June 30, 2019, but it's still before the Senate.
1: Yeah, and again, I don't think there'll be any doubt this passes. I think both sides of of, uh, politics are going to support this measure. So it's just a case of building it into the legislative program and, and dealing with it. So it's going to happen. I don't think anyone out there would be delaying the purchase of an asset because this hasn't passed. Um, just like there's no great need to race out and buy the asset immediately before 30 June <laughs> to generate your tax deduction. My advice to people has always been in business, do you need the asset or don't you need the asset? And if you need the asset, buy it.
0: Shouldn't be You'd, driven by tax yeah, motivation. Correct.
1: If you don't need mm. the asset, don't buy it. All
0: right, the next measure, there are proposed amendments to the small business CGT concessions. Now, this was announced in last year's budget, designed to improve the integrity of the rules to stop SBEs getting the concessions on the disposal of a interest in much larger entities we've got a bit of an interesting position the bill says 1 july 17 start date but there are two amendments before the senate one by senator david mayan the other by senator doug cameron putting forward a date of the 8th of february instead which was the date the draft legislation was released for comment the government to date has been silent on that date so we're a little unclear whether or not the rules will start on 1 july 17 or 8th of February 2018. So where does this leave taxpayers?
1: Again, uh, to make this, you know, to not to labour the point, but legislation by press release or announcement, um, you know, the, the initial idea we had a one liner in a budget that said people are accessing small business CDT concessions under Division 152 in relation to assets that don't relate to their small business. So that's all we got on the budget of 2017. Uh, No details, and we didn't actually see any details until, as you said, the 8th of February. Now, some people have gone and lobbied their local representative members of parliament and said, I didn't know what the rules were. I've entered a transaction. If this change happens back to 1 July 17 on a deal I did after 1 July, but before we saw what the law looked like, I'm 500 grand out of pocket. Well,
0: there are particularly people that have already contributed amounts into super.
1: And that makes it even worse, because unless you've met a condition of release, you won't be able to get the money back out of super. That's right. So, I suppose to move a date of effect to when you actually knew what the change was going to be. And as you said, you know, we've got basically a change that will apply at the taxpayer level, the entity level they're selling their interest out of, and how we measure a modification to the measurement of, uh, you know, whether you've got active assets or not. But the, the general policy intent is if you're selling out of an entity that is not small, you should not be able to access Division 152. So that's the broad policy intent, and I think that's a fair and reasonable position. The small business concessions were generated or put in place to provide a concession for small businesses to then allow people who perhaps have a stake in a larger business just because of the way the mechanics work with percentages is probably not in accordance with the original intention. So I don't have any trouble with the change. It's the date that it applies from.
0: Look, I also heard from um, a lawyer speaking about this where he said that there was a concern by the ATO where people were relying on an ATO ruling on managed investment trusts that said if you held units in certain managed investment trusts, you were carrying on a business, which meant you're an Mm. SBE, and then suddenly you could access the concessions in relation to the the sale of interest in very large businesses. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Main residence. So we've got main residence exemption changes proposed for non-residents. And if we stand back and look at the policy that's designed to say, yes, we're going to ensure that a non-resident can no longer access the exemption, fine. But we've got an issue with Aussie expats and the retrospectivity of the removal of that exemption back to effectively what will be 20 September 1985. That bill remains before the Senate. So your observations on the bill denying the main residence exemption to non-residents?
1: I think we've been heavily involved at Tax Banner in terms of explaining to Treasury the outrageousness of this measure in a circumstance which I'll repeat. So if I bought a house in 1986, I've lived in it ever since, I contract a disease, which means I've got to leave Australia for warmer climes, get up near the equator. Um, I leave Australia, but I haven't yet sold my house. No one wants to buy it. I become a non-resident, and let's say within six months to a year, someone comes up and signs a contract. At the time of that event, I'm a foreigner, so I get no, as the law is currently drafted, I get no main residence exemption whatsoever, even though there's over 30 years of occupancy as my main residence.
0: But surely the six-year rule applies?
1: Well, the six-year rule doesn't apply, nor does uh, the other concessions under 118B of the 97 Act, because the way the government's drafted the change is it's a threshold question at the start of the main residence provisions. In other words, you just start that provision and you say, get to the threshold question, are you a foreign resident at the time of the event? And if you answer that yes, you go no further into the subdivision. So you don't get your six year absence, you don't get your step up when it first might be used as income producing, none of that applies. You just don't get a a first step inside the main residence exemption provisions.
0: But I get a little bit of CGT discount.
1: Uh, You'll get a proportionate discount, yes. (laughs) And again, a difficult, com- complex calculation. Mm. So I think the government's finally twigged that that is an unfair proposition. And I think kelly um, was on record of saying we maybe need to have a look at that. But no no real position yet from the government on whether they will change it.
0: No, there isn't. And look, I've had extensive discussions with Treasury and the ATO and the government in the last 12 months on this. And there seems to be this position that we don't amend bills now, that's not the case. We have seen bills amended before in the Senate. So it's back with the government. They need to decide what they're going to do with this mm-hmm. one.
1: And I think common sense, um, as you said, we've talked to Treasury, you know, my view is if you really want to do this, that's fine, but there's no, no, nothing to stop a resetting of cost base on the day you cease to be a resident of Australia. Uh, we do it for people coming to the country. Why can't we do it for people leaving the country? So there is a mechanism available to relieve that aspect of the harshness of the the provision.
0: And perhaps just to explain to everyone that there are two suggestions I have put forward to Treasury a number of times to improve the fairness of this measure. And one would be exactly what Neil's described. You would reset the cost base of the property on the date you become a non-resident and that way the taxable gain is confined to that which has accrued since you became a non-resident. And the other would be to allow a prorating of days for the period that you were a resident. Now, both of those measures would provide fairness and it would not undermine the policy that the exemption not be available to genuine non-residents.
1: agree, agree. and that that seems to be a reasonable approach, so stay tuned.
0: Single-touch payroll. Now, that's probably the subject of an entire separate podcast on another occasion, but just to understand where this bill is at, because we've certainly got measures in place for the substantial employers, those who had 20 or more on 1 April this year, but where are we at with the smalls?
1: Well, there's a piece of law before Parliament, but I don't think you know. there's any urgency to get this one through. It's gonna happen. It will be adopted by those with fewer than 20 heads. I'll call it heads, not people. Uh, if you've got fewer than 20 heads at the 1st of April in the year preceding one, so one April next year, um, you'll be in. Uh, currently, those with more than 20 are in. It will happen. So I don't see this one as one of those urgent needs to be dealt with by Parliament. Um, There's still some issues around people in the, you know, very micro-employers, you know, they might have one or two staff, they're in remote parts of the country and they don't even know what the internet is, so to force them into an electronic system might still have some... Some issues, so whether there's a transitional period to get people on board and, and without hitting with the big sticks. So I think if there will be some sort of concessions, let's call it six months, 12 months, where even though you're compelled to be in the system, they might sort of turn a blind eye to the strict application of the single-touch payroll rules.
0: And look, there'll be future announcements coming from the tax office on that. So, handful of measures that are not yet bills. So these are announcements or draft legislation. Firstly, R&D.
1: Well the R&D has been released as an exposure draft and again I think that's that's again something that even though it's applying from 1 July 2018 in the fullness of time, it will happen. Uh, the exposure draft's been out for comment now for a while, so I would expect in the next session of parliament in a couple of weeks' time, given we're recording this in uh, early September, that that bill will come before parliament and probably go through without too many concerns. I know some of our scientists have made comments that this is a backward step in terms of innovation and encouraging research and development, but I think the government's committed to it and it will get through um, in a reasonable degree of time.
0: A measure that came out of the Black Economy Task Force, there is a proposal from 1 July 19 to deny a tax deduction for payments made to workers where there is an obligation to withhold, but no PAYG withholding or no no ABN withholding has been withheld from that payment and that would deny a deduction for the payment made to the worker.
1: Again, we've seen an exposure draft on it, how it's going to look. Again, this could have been a lot worse. The Black Economy Task Force canvassed the possibility that there should be no tax deductions for any payment of wages made in cash. The government hasn't gone down that far.
0: That would leave cafes a bit short, wouldn't it?
1: Well, not just cafes, but hospitality generally is an industry where apparently cash is a um, common form of uh, paying the wages. But the government's gone with, okay, if you should have withheld and you don't, you'll be denied the deduction. If you have a contractor and they should have quoted an ABN and they didn't, uh, then you know, you'll know you lose your tax deduction. So it's a three-fold penalty if you like, failure to withhold, failure to remit and now you'll lose your tax deduction. My view on this is how are they going to enforce it?
0: Isn't it going to be more a, a case of audit? If they find you later they would then deny the deduction that you may have already claimed?
1: It could be post-post uh, post, certainly post-lodgement uh, issues but um, being self-assessment I'm sure the delinquent businesses who haven't withheld will recognise that and therefore deny themselves the deduction.
0: I have the utmost confidence in that, Neil.
1: (laughs) Yes, we're a bit cynical on this one.
0: We are. All right, the next measure, taxable payments reporting system. We've already got this in place in relation to the construction industry. There is a bill before Parliament proposing to extend it to cleaners and couriers from 1 July 18, but a further proposal, still in draft, to extend it to road freight... IT and security services from on July 19. Is this a never-ending expansion of these rules?
1: I don't know that a never-ending expansion but I did make a comment pre-budget that the reporting mechanism, it won't be long before all businesses may have to report the payments they make to contractors um, for the purposes of data matching and allowing the tax office to make sure that these recipients of the money are returning it in their tax return. So a bit of data matching. Um, We're getting back to a point where we're almost to the old prescribed payment system, uh, which was a collection mechanism for businesses that perhaps didn't have a high uh, compliance ratio. So these sort of businesses, you engage labour to help you with your business, I'm in the business of road freight, um, security services, surveillance activities. uh, will we keep adding industries to it? We could do. We could add more industries or we might just have a universal, if you pay somebody, you need to tell the tax man about it for the purpose of data matching. So we might end up with a universal application and that's more than tinkering or broadening, that's changing the whole idea. So, And I can see that that could become part of our system.
0: Well it must be working for the tax office because if it wasn't they wouldn't keep broadening it.
1: Yeah, of course. Well, any information is better than no information. So I think the building game, the couriers, the cleaners, the IT, the freight, uh, surveillance. Um, All
0: right, so here's a question without notice. What's the next industry that comes into these rules? Hairdressing. Okay. Watch this space. There's a big call from Neil. <laughs> All right, a couple of other measures which are worth touching on. Reforms to the Australian Business Number, the ABN, of course it's been around for 18 years originally introduced to provide a basis for registering businesses for GST but it's used far more widely than that these days and there have been concerns about its use or misuse, fraudulent activity, we've got Phoenix operators, we've got people not updating their information on the Australian Business Register. So a couple of proposals by the government, they're looking at possibly bringing in a renewal system so you have to renew the ABN on a regular basis and possibly even a renewal fee akin to renewing a company registration or a business name. Your thoughts on that?
1: Well, there has been abuse, and the Black Economy Task Force um, gave us a bit of an insight into what might have been going on with the abuse of ABNs. Um, I'm sure a lot of people have heard or read in newspapers about uh, the Northern Territory where a high proportion of transactions were quoting the ABN of Bunnings. Um, you know, the the Black Economy Task Force interim report flagged an idea of let's replace it with an Australian business licence, but I'm not sure that that would work because then people would be quoting the ABL of Bunnings. Uh, The original purpose of ABNs was to become the universal identifier, you know, almost Australia card-like. But then we had more numbers coming in, you know. You had your tax file number, obviously, which was already subject to high degree of security and and, uh, uh, control. The ABM was supposed to be the only other number you'd needed, but you know, if I wasn't in business, I wasn't an enterprise, I didn't need one, but I might have been withholding from payment. So I needed a WPN, a withholding payer number. So there wasn't this universal identifier. Um, as you say, 18 years down the road, should we do something about it? I think to check that the details are all correct, maybe that you affirm that the details are up to date and accurate, whether that be through a tax return process, do I really need to do something else? Charging a fee for a government mandated number is not what I would think would be ideal. Um, we don't have to pay for a tax file number or an ACN.
0: But we do have to pay to renew a company each year.
1: We do have to pay under ASIC rules. We also have to pay for a driver's licence to be approved to drive on our roads. Uh, other licence holders need it to pay an annual um, subscription if you like. So. It's certainly worth having a discussion about, but in my view, the re-registration or the affirmation of your details is something that I think is okay. I don't think they could charge or should charge to have a a required prescribed number um, from the government.
0: And just so our listeners understand, Tax Banter has been present at consultations run by the government, Treasury and the ATO as part of these reforms. So we'll keep you updated as uh, there are developments. Now the last one which is uh, probably one of the biggest measures and affects so many of our clients, Division 7A.
1: Yeah Division 7A, I keep hearing from those that should know and perhaps I trust to know that the release of the Government's formal response to the Board of Taxes post implementation review is imminent.
0: Now can I take you back, <laughs> when was that report released by the Board of Taxation?
1: Well it's been a while Robin. Um late 2014. Uh, the board delivered its report and the government released that uh, the following June. So we've seen what the board recommended. We've basically got one liner from Scott Morrison in his first budget as Treasurer, 2016's budget, that said, Good ideas, let's do some of them. But, a pretty but which ones? M- well, that's what, well, who knows? We've got. Uh, the 109RB Commissioner's discretion to disregard the application of Div 7A. That currently requires the commissioner to actually act. Um, One of the board's recommendations and the government agreed to is you self-assess.
0: That would be very welcome.
1: So that's where the operation of Div 7A was uh, inadvertent or a mistake. Um, The main one is the, uh, what we call them, the um, legacy issues. So before Division 7A commenced, we had Section 108 so we drew a line in the sand and said anything before the 4th of December 1997, not subject to Div 7A. Now those 108, old 108 debit loans sitting on company balance sheets have not moved and it's now more than 20 years down the road. Now most people, if they'd borrowed money, would have the lender screaming at them after 20 years, but these were at call, interest free. Now the board sort of cut to the chase and said let's stop mucking around, let's call it a loan. and. Embrace those into our brave new world. We're recommending, which was a ten-year principal and interest arrangement. So the other legacy issue is the unpaid present entitlements from trust to corporate beneficiaries, pre the sixteenth of December 'o nine. So our UPEs pre that date. Again, the board said, let's cut to the chase, call it a loan, stop mucking around, and bring that into the brave new world. We're recommending, which is a ten-year principal and interest. In other words, the companies need to be repaid that money over a 10 year period with both the principal and interest. Now Scott Morrison in his budget said let's simplify the loan arrangements, now did he mean all of that or didn't he? So it was supposed to start July 18, that's now come and gone, I lost a bet on budget night that we would have had the details then. So I knew they were imminent, That the package had basically been completed, ready to be released but the Government the uh, just stalled and said let's go to 1 July 19. Now it would be nice to know exactly what the government's thinking with their changes to Div 7A. Now
0: timing wise, 1 July 19 is going to place us beyond the next election. So it is more than likely that whatever amendments we do get are going to be in the next term of Parliament.
1: Potentially, um, at least starting from 1 July 19, but again what are they going to do? You know, are they going to embrace all of the Board's recommendations? Are they going to only do some of them?
0: And where does this leave all our sub-trusts and our option ones and option twos, investment arrangements?
1: Yes. So, you know, there's great uncertainty still around private companies and the transactions they've undertaken, both historically and going forward.
0: So something else to keep an eye on?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's, again, a critical one, a lot of money tied up in those legacy issues.
0: They're big dollars, absolutely. So thank you, Neil, again for joining me today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tax Yak. If you'd like to connect with us on social media and let us know what you think or suggest future topics or speakers, you'll find us on LinkedIn and Twitter, or you can email us at podcast at taxbanter.com.au. You can also find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter hyphen blog. We look forward to you joining us next time.